Good morning. I bring you greetings from Southern California. I had uh, dinner with Mike and JoLynn and the kids on Thursday night. We went to the Huntington Beach Pier in Huntington Beach, California, believe it or not. And I don't know if any of you have been there. It's big pier. It's about a mile long, I think. And it's about as wide as this church. Maybe not quite that wide. Um, and we're walking out to the end of the pier. There's a place to eat there called Ruby's Diner that we wanted to go to. And I don't know if any of you younger people are into this, but there's a new craze sweeping America. Anybody, can anybody tell me what it is on your phone? It's called Pokemon Go, I think. And I swear half of the people on the Huntington Beach Pier, and there were a lot of people, were playing that. So they're, I mean, they, they don't really watch where they're going because they're looking, oh, sorry, oh, whoop, fell over the edge. But, <laughs> man, that is crazy. Are they playing that here in Whiting yet? Has anybody played Pokemon? Oh, yeah, okay, well... So uh, that was a great North American Christian Convention. I want to uh, encourage you, by the way, next summer, the North American Christian Convention is going to be in Kansas City. And you can go. You can all go. Uh, I've probably gone to, I don't know how many, maybe 20 North American Christian Conventions. And this might have been the best one I've ever been to. And that's saying something because the year before it was in Cincinnati, and it was maybe the worst one that I've ever been to. In fact, I, I, for a while I was serving on the continuation committee and, and we were talking, it's like, I think we just killed the convention. This was so bad. I mean, it was bad. And the, the year before that, it was mediocre. It wasn't very good either. And so we thought the attendance was gonna be way down. They had budgeted for 3,500 people to register and they had over 6,000. So the people turned out from California about half of those people were from, Cali from Southern California, which is kind of unusual to get such a large local group. And so we're hoping that next year, Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, that we can send 1,000 people. And I talked with Gene Apple, the president of the convention next year, so watch out for that. Gene Apple is a wonderful, wonderful pastor, great speaker, and I already have seen the, the program for next year, and it will be worth your time to plan next summer in Kansas City. Mike will be giving you some more information about that. You know, I got something in my head. Um, ever have one of those things that happens that you, you're just kind of like you can't stop thinking about it? So I, I was on my way this morning and uh, from my house, I live in La Vista, just south of Omaha, and stopped by, I don't know, it's like Casey's or something, and uh, to get coffee and a, and a donut and uh, my healthy breakfast. And, okay, now, I don't want to be offensive to anybody, but there was an older lady in there. Okay? And let me just say, if, if you're older than I am, and I don't care really if you're a man or a woman, let's say you're 20, maybe 30 years older, Shorts, not a good look. Especially short shorts. Especially tight short shorts, okay? So anyway, 
this lady's in there, and she obviously was in there all the time because she knew the, the cashier guy in there. And I think her name was May. And so I'm leaving, and she's coming out behind me, and I'm holding the door for her. And uh, this guy goes, um, okay, we'll see you tomorrow, May. Uh, don't get into any trouble. And she's like, she turned around and she goes, I'm overdue. <laughs> now you've all got that in your brains now too. So <laughs> anyway, well, Mike just asked me to preach a favorite sermon this morning. And I want to talk about uh, a text from a book that probably many of you have never read before. It's the book of Zephaniah, and we'll get there. It'll be a little while. I want to set this up, but Zephaniah, in the Old Testament, if you want to find it, we're going to read a passage. And I want to talk about singing, though. We had some great singing this morning. I really always, when I come to Whiting, appreciate the, the worship time and Josh leading, and, and it's just wonderful. But a lot of people are saying the last few years, last 10 years or so, in America, singing is back. Now, this is partly due to shows on t television like American Idol or The Voice, um, but there's been a resurgence in vocal music in recent years. We've seen instant celebrities off of American Idol, Kelly Clarkson, Jennifer Hudson, Carrie Underwood, you, you know some of the names. And in churches, there's been a little bit of an evolution in that the trend is somewhat away from the show. We saw this at the North American uh, just this last week in, in Anaheim, and it was a great, really talented worship team. They had about 15 people from a bunch of different churches. But sometimes they all stepped away from their mics and just let the, the congregation, the 5,000 people, sing and listen to the voices. Uh, it... For a while, the, the trend in worship was that we put on a kind of a show up here, and we didn't care whether you sang or not because the, the music was so loud, no one could hear you singing. But there's a renewed emphasis upon congregational singing. And it, it makes me wonder about music in general. Uh, you know, some of you know a little bit about me. I was originally a music major at a private university. I played the violin and was planning on making that my career. And... Uh, Long story short, God changed my heart, drew me into ministry, but I've never given up on music. The Bible indicates that musical instruments were invented by a guy named Jubal, J-U-B-A-L, and he, we get the idea of jubilation from his name. He was a person who lived before the time of Noah, before the flood of Noah. Genesis 4 says his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. And in this little section in Genesis 4, it ends up with this statement. It says, and people began to call on the name of the Lord. Well, that's worship. That, the implication there is worship with singing, with praising, with maybe instruments, maybe with dancing. Because the Bible is full of music, isn't it? David, the musician king, and we don't even think about this so much, but the book of Ecclesiastes presents his son Solomon as also a musical person. The Jerusalem temple, we're told in the Old Testament, had professional musicians. In First Chronicles, we're told, all these men were under the supervision of their father for the music 
of the temple of the Lord with cymbals, lyres, harps for the ministry of the house of God, of family business, of musicians for the temple. Music is a sign of family celebration in the Bible. In the parable of the prodigal son, you might remember the story of the son who leaves and then he comes home. He comes home and it says <clears throat> the older son is in the field and when he came near the house, what does, he, what does he do? He heard music and dancing. If he heard the dancing, it was clogging or something. I don't know. But he heard music and dancing because a celebration is going on. And the father goes out and says, this my son was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now is found. Music in the Bible is used to celebrate military victories. The Song of Moses the song of Miriam in the book of Exodus. Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. And we even find in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, that lack of music is a sign of depression and even defeat. In Psalm 137, the, the people of Israel have been deported to Babylon. They've suffered a, a crushing defeat, and they are now conquered people. They've, they've moved to Babylon, and they've lost everything. And it says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, this is in Babylon, we hung up our harps. For the captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. And they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Well, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? So this idea that when we're defeated, when we are depressed, we have no more song in our heart. You all know that heaven is pictured in the book of Revelation as a place of joyous, endless singing and worship. One of the great promises of the Bible is in the prophecy in Revelation chapter 5 where it says we will sing a new song, a new song in heaven. But when I think about music, there, it's really kind of a mysterious thing. Some of you that are musical know that there are mathematical relationships in music. It's said that the people that are really into music theory how music works are also really good in, in math. The two go together. And sometimes there's cross-fertilization in those departments in the university, the math department and the music department. For example, in an, in an orchestra, in a symphony orchestra, they tune the orchestra to the note A, to A. And they've decided over the years that they're going to, there are different A's, but they use one that's 440 vibrations per second the 440A. Well, what happens if you double that? You go from 440 to 880, twice as much. You get A an octave higher. The music works mathematically, even though it took us a long time to discover this. This was noticed by ancient uh, people, by the Greeks, followed by the name of Pythagoras. Some of you may remember him from Geometry, the Pythagorean theorem, a, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, the right angle thing. 
Pythagoras saw a relationship, though, in between math and music. He observed this when he, 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 in his village, he'd go to the blacksmith shop, and he'd hear the blacksmith pounding on, on bars of iron and realize the longer the bar, the lower the note that would come out of the pounding. So much so that a bar that was exactly half size of a longer one would be the octave higher. He's the one who discovered this. Pythagoras observed geometric mathematical relationships in music. In fact, for him, all reality was mathematical. It could be said, therefore, all reality was musical. And what about our capacity to understand music? I know there's probably some people here this morning that, well, I'm not musical at all. I should have, like, slept in this morning and still listened to Krauss because, man, this is really boring stuff. But how, how is it that we even understand music? The 20th century philosopher uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein pondered over the reality. He, he's, how, why do we hear melodies instead of individual notes. Like, uh, let me give you an example here. Ba, 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 ba. Why do we hear that melody instead of each note? Wittgenstein likened that to language. Why do we hear a sentence instead of individual words? Music, then, is like a language for him, and language is like music. And it seems that we are born with the capacity to understand both. God created us that way. And so... Some would say, well, there's a lack of capacity for some people to understand music at all. We call those people sometimes tone deaf. Why? Well, most people that really study this believe that no one is totally tone deaf. They may have, they just need some training to get at least a little bit of sense of that. Remember, <laughs> tone deaf. Beethoven, that great composer, he wrote his Ninth Symphony from which that tune comes, by the way. Pa, 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 joyful, joyful. He wrote that when he was totally stone deaf. In fact, the story is when it, the Ninth Symphony premiered, which has a big choir and orchestra and everything, that when it was over, he kept beating because he couldn't hear anything. So is, is musical ability and appreciation in human beings a product of random evolution? What would be the purpose for our survival to be able to understand music? Or, or think of this for a minute. What about the emotional impact of music? Why are, are emotions moved when we hear certain types of music. I, I remember playing many years in symphony orchestras. We would play Finlandia, or uh, the 1812 Overture written by Tchaikovsky, which is not about the War of 1812, it's about some deal in Russia. And, you know, 
And we would play that and get to the climactic parts, and I would feel patriotic. Sibelius writes Finlandia about his country, Finland. I could care less about Finland or Russia, but I, that, those, those tunes made me feel patriotic as an American. Well, the church commonly comes together weekly to worship, to be instructed, to have fellowship. And when we worship, a key element is to be found in singing of praises to God. This is a very ancient practice, by the way, older than the church itself. 3,000 years ago, the psalmist wrote, Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. So have you ever considered that the Lord sings too? The Bible gives many hints about the musical nature of God. Job uh, says in one place he knew that God was the one who gave songs in the night, the one who gives him music in his times of depression. So, the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah, let me give just a little background here. In the history of Israel, the nation of Judah, King Josiah was the last righteous king to rule in Jerusalem before the destruction of the city by the Babylonians. The Bible teaches that there was no king before him, neither after him arose any like him. He came to the throne under very, very difficult circumstances. Um, Manasseh was his grandfather. Manasseh was king for 55 years. And it's said in the book of Jeremiah and in 2 Kings that Manasseh was so evil that that was the reason that God destroyed Jerusalem. Manasseh's sin. That, that was the point of no turning back. But it didn't happen right away. Manasseh had a son named King Amon. That was Josiah's father. But Amon was killed in a palace coup d'etat, and it brings Josiah to the throne. He's eight years old. Eight years old. I mean, we're having like presidential stuff with the oldest crop of presidential people I've ever seen, you know, right now. And what if we went down to the children's department and found an eight-year-old and said, you're going to be the leader of our country now? Eight years old. But he made a lot of good decisions. It's during his reign that they find, it, they're remodeling in the temple. This is incredible to me. They're, they're cleaning up the temple, and they find what they call the book of the law. Like, how did it get lost? What, what happened? You lost the Bible for 100 years? We think it's a copy of the book of Deuteronomy, and they begin to read it and do what it says. Well, the reforms of Josiah, though, didn't work very well. They were apparently shallow, and after he dies, the, it just delays the downward spiral of Judah. He's killed in a battle with the Egyptians, and his successors are just not of his moral stature. God allows the Babylonians then to come and dominate the nation of Judah. The, very early, the cream of the crop of the young Hebrew men are taken into captivity into Daniel, uh, to Babylon. This includes people like Daniel and probably Ezekiel. And even after this, eventually the city of Jerusalem is destroyed in 587 B.C., about 20 years after the death of Josiah. Now, in this period then, between Josiah and the destruction, 
God raises up three great prophets. One of those is Zephaniah. The other two are Habakkuk and Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the most famous. But Zephaniah preached of the coming doom of Judah because of its deep sin. He also gave a picture of God's future restoration. And although Zephaniah prophesied at the time of Josiah's reforms, he saw the coming demise of Judah. And he's the spokesman. Sometimes he's called the day of the Lord prophet. The day of God's judgment on Judah, on Israel. God moved powerfully to punish wickedness, to redeem the righteous. And the day of the Lord found fulfillment in the history of Judah with its exile and return, but it also looks forward to a, time, a future day of God's final judgment for all humanity. So when we read in the Old Testament about the day of the Lord, yeah, that's, that's Judah being destroyed in 586 and 587 and then coming back, but it's also the time of judgment that we have yet to experience. Uh, acquaintance of mine, I haven't seen him for a long time, by the name of Bruce Larson, uh, was a minister years ago at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle. That's where I got to know him. And later, he actually went to the Crystal Cathedral, was Bob Schuler's sort of second preacher when, when Schuler had to be gone for a number of years. He's retired now. But in one of his books, Bruce Larson relates a story of being on a sabbatical as the preacher. What he, in a lot of those bigger denominational churches, would be very common that the preacher in the summer would maybe get a two-month period to be gone. And it wasn't really a vacation. They would take this time to, to go somewhere, maybe, you know, a cabin in the woods or whatever, and they would work on their sermons for the next year. They would outline all the sermons and really begin to develop all of those. And uh, we don't do that so much anymore. But at, when he was at University Press, he was able to do that. And he tells the story of being on sabbatical, but he went to Scotland. Now, that sounds really cool. Man, I get to go to Scotland for the summer, you know. What I mean? Well, when you read his story, it wasn't really that cool. His wife wasn't able to come. He was lonely. He was staying in this boarding house. It was kind of a dump, and, and you know, he just got depressed. And so he tells the story of one morning he was particularly discouraged and grumpy. He'd been trying to write. He just couldn't get anything. He's having writer's block, and, and he hears out in the hallway in this boarding house the maid, her name was Rosie, and he describes her as having red hair and being about this tall and about that wide also. And she's out singing in the hallway, and it just really irritated him. I mean, he's grumpy. So he goes out to Rosie, and he was going to ask her to be quiet, but before he could even begin to speak, she turned to him with a big smile, and she asked, Dr. Larson, have you heard the Lord singing this morning? It's in the good book, you know. And he found it. So let's read it. Zephaniah chapter 3, and I want to begin with verse 14. Zephaniah three fourteen. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion, Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear 
disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives you victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. And here it is. He, would, he will exult over you with loud singing. As on the day of a festival, I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time, and I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you a home. At that time, I will bring you home. At that time when I gather you, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The prophet Zephaniah offers this remarkable view of God as one who sings. I don't know exactly how to understand that. We don't really think that God has a physical body and a mouth like and vocal cords. But he is foretelling a time when God would restore Israel and would vanquish Israel's enemies. Zephaniah says that then the Lord would rejoice over you with singing. Jesus taught there would be rejoicing in heaven whenever a sinner comes to repentance. We can well imagine that included singing. And I, I arrived then, and it took me a long time to get there, I'm sorry, at a very profound truth. We are musical because God is musical. We are musical because God is is musical, and we are created in his image. Pythagoras and Wittgenstein were both right after a fashion. You know, I can't help thinking about this. What kind of a voice do you think God has? I always like to imagine a big, deep bass, you know, basso profundo, but maybe we'll get to hear it, and maybe we'll be surprised. Are you one over whom God sings? The Bible teaches that our repentance and devotion are a victory for God and that they are worth singing about. Oh, how we long to hear his melodious voice. Is it possible that your life can make a melodious harmony with God as you sing together? I ran across the story many years ago of a famous evangelist named Charles who told the story when he was a little boy that his father uh, was a preacher and Charles played Little League Baseball and his father always had, it was always hard for him to get to his games, but the, like the elders of his church knew that when Charles was playing that evening, you know, at, when, the game, when it was time for the game, it, the meeting had to stop because his preacher father would come to the game, but usually wasn't there at the start. 
But he tells a story at one time, and he, he was just a little guy, and in those days where he played, they didn't have any fence, you know, outfield fence, it just was field. And uh, a little guy, but he got the pitch he wanted, and he took a swing, and you guys who have played, and, and gals too, have played softball or baseball, you know when you, you hit that ball, and it just, you, you, you're swinging as hard as you can, and you hit the sweet spot. You know what that feeling is like? Isn't that great? You know, and the ball is really going to go. So the ball went over the outfielder's head, and he had never experienced that before. And uh, so he's running, and he runs around first base. He runs around second base, and he runs around third base. And then he can hear his father in the stands. He didn't even know he was there. Come home, Charles. Come all the way home. I don't know where you're at today. I'm guessing some of you need to come home. God says he wants to sing over you and to bring you home. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the faith of a man like Zephaniah who who was living in good times but could see horrible times coming, and yet he never gave up on preaching and on being faithful and on loving you and on rejoicing with you. So if there is one here today, even who needs to come home, Father, we pray that you would touch their hearts with the joy of your salvation. We pray that you would give us the peace, knowing that you are a God who loves us and who sings over us every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.